Today we have been, uh, it's clearly, it's Easter Sunday, and um, one of the things that um, we've been doing in, in our church here is we spent a few weeks um, thinking and reflecting on faith. Um, this sort of, in one sense it's like, duh, what else is there? But faith, this idea of trusting Jesus, and we've looked at it in the book of Mark, and thought about what Mark was saying to people who would follow Jesus about what does it actually mean to trust him? And one of the things that we kept coming back to time and time again was that when Mark wrote one of the Gospels and wrote about followers of Jesus and people who were called to have faith, most of the time people didn't find it easy. They found it confusing and they found that God did unexpected things but Jesus kept saying to people who would want to follow him, will you trust me? Will you trust me? And today on Easter Sunday, we come to the end of that particular story. On Friday, a number of us were here in church and we were retelling the story of when Jesus was crucified. And you can imagine on that day, people who'd chosen to follow Jesus, everything would have fallen apart on that day. It's like, that is the worst day of our lives. Because we thought, we thought, we thought it would end differently. We thought that Jesus would actually be victorious. We had thought. And for three long days, these early disciples would have been in grief and they would have been in despair. And yet, Easter Sunday happened. Last Sunday, in the, day, in the Sunday Times, the, mag- uh, the newspaper, they had an article about the, the best-selling books of each decade over the last 40 years. And they were trying to reflect on what does it say to us about the world we live in, our society. And these, some of you re- might remember these books, and now you can see most of them in second-hand bookshops. Um, but in the 1970s, The best-selling book in the 1970s was The Country Diary of an Edwardian Lady. Any of you remember that? The 1970s were great, weren't they? It was prog rock, it was flares, it was was lots of different colours all going together, long hair for blokes and long dresses for women. It was brilliant. High-waisters, do you remember those? Trousers that went up to your ooksters. Um, That's a technical term. Um... And, and yet it was also three-day weeks. And it was unrest. And it was bins not being emptied for months. Do you remember those days? And what they suggested was in the 1970s, the reason that the Edwardian country diary, the country diary of an Edwardian lady was because actually we were so unhappy. So we went back to a nostalgic, a nostalgic age. In the 1980s, we all felt richer. And so the the best-selling novel was A Year in Provence, where we thought, well, wouldn't it be lovely to have a second property in Provence? And uh, people started to believe it might be true. In the 90s, the best-selling book, but probably the book that was least read, was A Brief History of Time, Stephen Hawkins. That sense that actually, and, and he, I mean, he's bigger brains than we've got all put together in this room, but what he was trying to get at was this idea that you can see back far enough to see not only how it began, but how it all holds together. The 90s, Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, 
interesting, from the 1980s, when it was science, to the 1990s, where it's conspiracy. And then, so far, so far, the best-selling book has been a street cat named Bob. Yeah. And how he saved my life. It's kind of interesting, because we live in a, we live in a suspicious age. We live in an age of conspiracy. We live where people talk about the idea that people somewhere have got the inside knowledge and they're making things happen and we're being manipulated. And that's one of the reasons why the Da Vinci Code was so intriguing. Some of you might have read it. But now we don't even believe the conspiracies. So now who can you trust? (laughs) That's what you're left with. And the guy who was writing about it was saying, well, what does it say about the world in which we live? Well, here we are today on Easter Sunday. And it's easy on Easter Sunday to think that what we need to do is to suspend our rational faculties, to kind of join the game of church, to go along with the story to go along with angels and stones being rolled away from bodies that come back to life, everything that's impossible. It's like a day when you've got to suspend your normal way of thinking because this sort of stuff doesn't happen. And so we come to church and we sing our songs and we read our readings, but it's easy to think, but in the real world, this doesn't hold up. For Mark and the Gospel writers, it's a question of trust. It's a question of faith. Faith is not a leap in the dark. It's a reasonable faith. But for Mark and his Gospel, it was so much about what is your life based on? Who are you relying on? How does the world work? Who do you trust? It'd be quite an interesting question to ask you. I'm not going to, but... Who do you actually trust? And for some people in the room, it would be, at the end of the day, the only person I can actually trust is me. Not me. (laughs) You understand, that would be be quite gratifying, but a little weird. (laughs) The only person that you can actually trust, for some of you in the room, would be, the only person I can actually trust is myself. Even those who are the closest to me, they might let me down. So I'm not going to rely too much on them. And for some of you that are Christians, you might want to say, even God sometimes seems to let me down. So the, person, the only person I can really rely on is me. But the story of Easter Sunday is, there's a bigger story. Because actually, what happens when you let yourself down? Where do you go when some of you go, I can't even trust myself? Where do you go then? Of course, there's lots of reasons to doubt about Easter Sunday. At least four. It wasn't expected. The interesting thing is that when the people who were following Jesus at the time, when they came to write about it later, they kept saying, of course he kept telling us he was going to rise from the dead. But we didn't get it. It was only afterwards when they thought, oh, yes, now it makes sense. There were no disciples standing outside the tomb waiting. 
because nobody expected it to happen. The first witnesses were women. Now, this isn't a sexist comment, but if you were wanting to write a cast iron sort of proof that Jesus rose from the dead, at that time, you would not have told the story in this way. You would not have said the first people who saw the empty tomb, who believed that Jesus had risen, were women. You would not have told people that. Because actually, they were the least likely people to be believed. You wouldn't tell the story like this. Third thing is, Romans were really efficient killers. They were really good at executing people. They weren't sort of amateurs. They did this really well. They executed thousands of people. And they didn't lose any of them. They all died. Do you remember, some of you might know the story well enough. Do you remember when they wanted to find out whether Jesus was really dead, the Roman soldier got a spear and stuck it in Jesus' side. They didn't take chances. Romans were good. It was like people, you know, in America, there's some states in America that have the death penalty. And you go in and you're electrocuted. Electrified, I was going to say. That's something completely different. Um, And you're strapped in. And you are sent, you know, thousands and thousands of volts of electricity through you. People don't come out of those rooms. The Americans don't get it wrong. They're good at it. The Romans were good at killing people. And the fourth thing is, this sort of thing just doesn't happen. The first century people were not stupid. They knew that dead people don't come back to life. This sort of thing just doesn't happen. And I reckon for lots of people today, who if you went on the street or if you went down to um, Trafford or wherever they might be gathering today, and you just said, do, do people resurrect? Do, does resurrection really happen? People would go, no, that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen, does it? And they, they wouldn't have any arguments about it, particularly just so it just doesn't happen. Life's not like that. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Mark's Gospel. And chapter 16. I'm going to pick it up at verse 9. Now those of you that have got a Bible in front of you and will be reading with me, you will notice that all of the Bibles will have a little sort of bit in brackets before that that says something to the effect of the earliest manuscripts... And some of the ancient witnesses don't have this passage I'm going to read from. But it's, but it's, been, involved, it's been included in the Bible. And what is happening here, just so you know, just so you're not thinking, oh, this is a Da Vinci Code business. What's going on here is that people recognise that probably Mark didn't write this bit, but the earliest disciples probably did. And what they did is they took the stories that were circulating and they included it as a finishing part to the Gospel of Mark. Because, if you look at verse 8, Mark's Gospel finishes really abruptly. It's one of the really, it's like one of the big, what's going on there, questions about the Bible. And some people think, if you're interested in this sort of stuff, some people think that Mark had another ending, but it just got lost. It might, the, the, effectively, the last page got lost. 
Other people go, no, Mark really intended it to do, so you're left with lots of questions. But what the early church thought was actually, we want to just add a little bit in, and so that's what they did. Anyway, this is what it says. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he'd driven seven demons. That's the point I was trying to say before about you wouldn't have chosen these people. This woman had been mentally ill, severely mentally ill. And she was one of the first people that Jesus appears to. If you were wanting to tell a story as if to say, look, people, you can really trust this, you wouldn't have, with all respect, and I really mean this with all due respect, you wouldn't have chosen her. Because everybody would have gone, well, she's crackers. But God did. She went and told those who'd been with him and who were mourning and weeping. And when they'd heard that Jesus was alive and that she'd seen him, they didn't believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported to the rest, but they didn't believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who'd seen him after he'd risen. And Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever doesn't believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it won't hurt them. They'll place their hands on people who are ill, and they'll get well. After Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. And the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. This is how Mark's gospel ends. Look at the struggle to believe. In verse 11, these disciples, they didn't believe it. They didn't believe that Jesus had risen. In verse 13, they didn't believe the people who told them that they'd seen Jesus. And in verse 14, Jesus himself rebukes his own disciples for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him. What I'm trying to say is this story wasn't easy for people to grasp. It wasn't automatic. And it still isn't. So why did they come to believe? There are two reasons. And the first was the empty tomb. But the empty tomb alone wouldn't have been proof enough. Because the empty tomb only signified that the body that had been there was no longer there. And it was easy enough to believe that just an empty tomb alone, somebody could have stolen the body. But the second thing were that Jesus appeared to people. He came to them. And he made himself known to them. And the story goes that for 40 days between, uh, the, between today, Easter Sunday, and what we call Pentecost, when the Spirit came on the church, Jesus kept coming to people who had followed him and saying, I am, I am alive, I have risen. And some of you are sitting there going, yeah. Because that sort of thing doesn't happen, does it? In 1930, 
some archaeologists found that stone, that, that sort of marble stone. And it was written, they think, because of the way they can date it and the references to it, it was written probably just after the resurrection had happened. And it was written by an emperor. It's called the Nazareth Stone. And that writing is very small, so let me just read it quickly. It's an ordinance of Caesar. It's my pleasure that graves and tombs remain undisturbed in perpetuity for the benefit of those who made them for the purpose of religious commemoration of the dead. However, if anyone has authentic information that someone's demolished a tomb or removed the buried or has with malicious intent transferred a body to another place or has removed the sealing stone at the mouth of the sepulchre, I order that a trial be instituted against such a person. It's therefore absolutely forbidden for anyone to violate tombs or remove the dead. In case of contravention of this decree, I order that the offender be sentenced to capital punishment on the charge of violation of the tomb. Now, that's first century bureaucratic language that says don't mess with dead bodies. That's from that time where the emperor says, we need to sort this out. Because if people have taken bodies out of tombs, they need to know they can't do that. Because what they're dealing with is a story that defies Rome. So the Roman emperor says, if you meddle with a tomb, this is the irony, we will kill you and put you in a tomb. <laughs> There's the irony. If you meddle with a tomb, we will kill you and put you in a tomb. What they would have done with Jesus' body, this is what normally happened. They wrapped it up in cloths and they put it on a shelf and those of you who know the story well, you know that a guy called Joseph came, Joseph and Arimathea said, uh, can I have the body? And he took it to his family tomb and they would wrap this the body up and they put it on the tomb and they would then leave it. They'd roll the stone across it and they'd leave it between six months and two years. And what they were waiting for was the body to decompose. Because by two years, all you're left with are bones. And what they would do then is they'd go back into the tomb, the family tomb, they'd gather the bones together, they'd put the bones in a box called an ossuary, and that would be your family resting place. That's what happened in those days. There was a system, and everybody knew it. So when, three days after the body's been on that ledge, the body's no longer there, someone says, someone's been messing with the grave. Now, the intriguing thing is that if, if you'd been a follower of Jesus and you'd been devoted to him and you'd seen him die on a cross and your heart was broken, you would not take that body and throw it into the dump. 
I don't want to be too emotive here, and you've got to be careful now. But let me just use the analogy, because some of you will get it better. Some of you, many of us in this room, have lost people that we really love. When they died, you were heartbroken, and all you wanted was them to come again. But that place where you buried them was the most precious place that you had then. You didn't want anybody to mess with it. You don't want anybody to violate it. It, The worst thing someone can do in our society is go into a graveyard and knock the gravestones down. In Presswich, in the Jewish cemetery, they go in and they put Nazi swastikas on the graves there. It's the worst thing you can do to a grave because actually these are precious people. The point I simply want to make is this. If you were a follower of Jesus, you wouldn't have taken his body out of the tomb and thrown it in the city dump. If you were a Roman soldier, you wouldn't have stolen the body to create the uproar that there was. If you were the Jewish leader, the last thing you would want is news of a resurrection. And if you were a common people, you'd voted for Barabbas. Because he's a better revolutionary than Jesus was. What are you going to do with a dead body? An empty tomb. An empty tomb and appearances. I'm nearly done. This is where I want to land. This is not a neutral fact. The resurrection of Jesus is not a, oh, that's an interesting fact. (laughs) Do you watch QI ever? This doesn't fall into the category of, oh, that's quite interesting. This is not a neutral fact. This is not quite interesting. This is earth-shattering. If Jesus has risen from the dead, then the Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus out of the way, what they recognised is our system is broken. Because if Jesus raised from the dead then their festivals, their temple, their law, their hierarchy, their belief about the resurrection of the dead at the end, all of that is is broken. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead by God, then the Messiah is risen. God has dealt with sin. So the existing system's no longer needed. If Jesus has been raised... All these people, the Jewish people, the leaders, have to reassess their lives. That's why in the earliest days of Christianity, the people who really, really were against it were the Jewish leaders. Because Jesus had messed with their system. For the Romans, if the man they killed on the cross has not stayed dead, they're no longer in control. That's Pilate. If the king of the Jews, as they named him on the cross, has overcome the killing machine, then they realized that he would be more trustworthy than the empire that had killed him. If you overcome the empire through resurrection, the empire is not the most powerful thing on earth. And finally for the people... As I said, they wanted to release this other revolutionary called Barabbas. They thought Jesus, uh, Barabbas would be more effective. But they would come to see 
that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is the one they could trust. And for us, it's the same. This Jesus is worth trusting. But if you trust him, if you trust the story, he will interrupt your life. He does change it. If you trust Jesus, then everything will be different. He is worth trusting, but your life will be different. Now, for some people, they go, well, my life's in such a mess at the moment, I'll try anything. This Jesus is worth trusting. But even for those of you that go, my life's great, without any reference to anything else, this Jesus is still worth trusting. He does change lives. And for those that follow, the big question is this. Does this truth become the defining truth that you live every day by? Today's Easter Sunday, tomorrow's a day off, and then Tuesday. And Tuesday we're back to normal. Back in the real world. Does the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus change the real world? This is the Easter message. Evil does not have the last word. God does. Evil does not win. God does. This is the Easter message. God cannot be silenced. You cannot put God in a tomb and think we'll just forget about him. This is the Easter message, that God cannot be contained. You cannot say, well, we've got a system, we've got a place, we've got somewhere for God, let's put him there. God breaks out everywhere. This is the Easter message. The world can be different. And that's how Mark's Gospel ends. Will you trust this resurrected Jesus? And some of us have been following Jesus for 50 years, 60 years, and some of us for five minutes. And it's still the same question. Will you trust this Jesus, the resurrected one? Let me pray together. Lord Jesus, we come. And we're reminded by the Bible that this is not a dead story. It's not something that just happened 2,000 years ago, but it's a story about Jesus who is alive. And that blows our minds and expands our imaginations because we don't think like that often. But Jesus, you are alive. And Lord, for some of us, we would want to ask this morning, that you would come into our lives, our lives that sometimes feel like we're just getting by, that, Lord, your life would be in our life and that our lives would be different. Lord, we pray for ourselves. We pray for our own situations, that, Lord, in the places where there just seems to be a lot of dying going on, Lord, that we would see life. Lord, the stuff we'd hoped for, the dreams we'd had, the plans we'd made, Lord, we pray that there would be life and not just regret. So, Lord, today we pray for ourselves that we would get a new sense of the resurrected Jesus. And, Lord, as we come and in a moment or two when we receive communion and then we go back to our seats, Lord, may we carry the good news of Jesus into our world, into our families, into our workplaces. May we live on Tuesday with the reality of the resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, for those of us who just feel like we don't really get it, 
Lord, would you come close to us so we would get it? And Lord, for those of us who just know we need a new start, Lord, will you forgive us? And Lord Jesus, may we surrender to you as our Lord and follow the King in the world in which we live. Lord, we pray this morning that your spirit would be amongst us and that your grace would rest on us in the name of Jesus. Amen.